Welcome to State House Soundbites, WITF's Pennsylvania Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Meyer, State Capitol Bureau Chief for WITF. You can hear my reports on public radio stations across the state. With me today is John Mysick of Penn Live uh, Editorial. Uh, thanks for coming. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And uh, Paula Knudsen of LNP's The Caucus. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Katie. Good morning. Um, so we have sort of a gun-centric episode today because of several things that have happened this week um, and a couple weeks ago as well. Um, so we're going to do some uh, just a com- compilation of recent reporting on this stuff. Um, first, John, you've been following this. Uh, we had some interesting sort of Pennsylvania-related <laughs> gun stuff that happened this week so on the national level. Yeah, we, uh, uh, U.S. Senator Pat Toomey um, Republican from up in the Lehigh Valley was among this bipartisan group, Katie, of lawmakers who met with um, President Donald Trump at midweek to try to find some solutions um, in the wake of the Parkland shootings. Uh, Toomey, along with uh, Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia, he's resurrecting a uh, background checks bill that came out six votes short of Senate passage in 2013. And that was in the wake of the Sandy Hook shooting. In the wake of the Sandy Sandy Hook shooting. And uh, Trump, in this White House session, was praising Toomey and Manchin, in fact, for bringing back this background checks because of that bill, because that's, that's something the president has talked about in the, in the days and weeks since the Parkland shooting. Um, and then took, events took kind of a strange <laughs> turn um, when he asked Toomey why his bill didn't include language raising the mandatory purchasing age for rifles and long guns from 18 to 21, because the purchasing age for handguns being 21. And Toomey said, well, that's not in the bill, not because... And Toomey, by the way, is opposed to raising right. the age. We can get into that for, into a second. Um, but then Trump went on this long rant about how it's the right thing to do, it's the very popular thing to do, and the reason that Senator Toomey wasn't doing it was because he was afraid of the National Rifle Association. Now, why is that an interesting thing to say to If there's any guy in Washington, D.C. who's not afraid of the NRA, it's probably Pat Toomey. They haven't given him money in eight years, and he's gotten a D-minus rating from them for uh, for years and years now since the, since the uh, background checks yeah, bill. Yeah, largely because of the bill that exactly, Trump is exact, Exactly about. right. But, you know, uh, as I wrote earlier in the week, if, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then the sort of the myriad of expressions that crossed Toomey's face as he was getting chewed out <laughs> by the president was like a war in pieces worth of them. It's just fascinating to watch. I would urge anybody watch. to go back and like look at that interaction the, on YouTube the video, the video was The video was great. I had about five people priceless. email me to tell me about the uh, to tell me about the link, um, but I mean this also though Katie goes to the heart of trying to get to trying to reach a consensus on gun control on Capitol Hill because not two days after Trump holds that session the, the Washington D.C. lobbyist for the National Rifle Association comes out and says no Tr- Trump is not in favor of any gun control measure so we're now seemingly back to, to square one on this well and that's why I mean and we knew this going into it I believe but like any policy position that Trump puts forward is always sort of like you don't know if that's really the position or if he's just saying that yeah. which appears to be what he was doing yeah, I mean, um, we, I mean we saw meeting. the same thing in the wake of the DACA talks and immigration yeah. a little bit earlier this year and the key with Trump is always to watch what he does rather than, uh, than what he says. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I do want to get into, because we were both on this conference call with Pat Toomey uh, before the Trump meeting happened. That's right. And uh, he, I think, he, I mean, Pat Toomey on gun control is a pretty powerful Republican, a pretty powerful person, period, just because he is one of those Republicans who works across the aisle on it. He has this background check bill with yep. Joe Manchin. Um, and so he, I think it's fair to say, was putting forward something that was a relatively moderate uh, 
sort of wide-ranging but moderate gun control measures. Right. Um, so you mentioned he did, does not um, support raising the age to buy a gun. Yeah, I mean, we try, tr- you know, we tried to nail him down on that on the call. And, you know, I mean, you heard that exchange back and forth. Um, for Senator Toomey, raising the minimum purchasing age on rifles and long guns to 21 from 18 is an is a unreasonable constitutional infringement. Um, but for whatever reason, having the handgun purchasing age at 21 is just fine with him. Um, you know, I went he, back. He mentioned the handguns are more likely, more likely used, used in crimes. crimes, but by the same token, the rifle, the weapons that's being used in every one of these mass shootings has not been a handgun. With all due respect to the senator, it's been a high capacity rifle. So that seemed, frankly, a little hollow to me. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that we're hearing, you know, to me or otherwise, about gun control on a national level? Anything that's being pushed? particularly hard on this? Well, I mean, you've, you've heard about, we've heard about that. I mean, everyone makes sort of positive noises about trying to increase access and, and funding for mental health treatment, but something yeah. that never seems to go anywhere. It's, it's, it never it's, really gets very specific. They never, and they never get specific, and it never seems to gain any traction. I mean, the one thing that we have seen this week that is sort of extra political is the way some retailers and some businesses have reacted in the wake of this. I mean, yeah. we saw Dick Sporting Goods, a Pennsylvania-based company, by the by, um, announced this week that it will no longer sell uh, AR-15-style uh, weapons in its stores and it will raise its minimum purchasing age to 21. Walmart, in the wake of this, also announced that it moved to 21. So the power in this case is maybe not on Capitol Hill, but with consumers voting with their wallets and companies realizing that this could impact their bottom line, which is probably the most powerful force of them all. Capitalism. Capitalism <laughs> is, a, is, a, is even more powerful than politics. They have moved yeah. in response to this. Absolutely. Um, and I do want to get uh, real quick. I mean, in Pennsylvania, there have been various pushes to regulate guns more strictly on the state level. Mm-hmm. Um, we never really see a whole lot of movement there, do we? No, I mean, we never have. You know, in Penn Live, we, we co-sponsored on Thursday evening with CBS 21 a, uh, a gubernatorial debate with the right. three Republican Gov candidates and sounded them out on all of this. Um, none of them are in favor of an assault weapons ban. All of them said would they would continue taking donations from the NRA. Actually, I think Laura Ellsworth said no, but Laura she wasn't so she sure said why. No. She's, uh, right, I'm sorry, excuse me. She said no, but... Um, you know, all of them sort of offered soft touch language about background checks and that kind of thing, but nothing really, nothing really substantive. I mean, not surprising given that they're Republican candidates, but even still. Yeah. And the, a couple of weeks ago in the caucus, we had a story about guns, and we had a breakout box that said, "Can any gun bills pass?" And there's a couple that people are talking about. One of them is the bump stock yeah. um, right. issue that uh, you know folks think that has gotten some attention. And then there's another one that deals with um, protection from abuse. Orders and seizing guns related to that. That's a bill from Senator Killian out of um, uh, the southeastern Chester County uh, area. But that bill's been sitting in the Senate Judiciary Committee for almost a year. Yeah. So, again, this is a very rural state, and I think a lot of, you know, rural representatives and senators have a lot of say in what happens here. And so people who want to regulate guns tend to not come from the rural areas, and they're often outgunned. Literally, uh, figuratively. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem there, also, I mean, it's also, it's not just Republican votes in Pennsylvania. The problem is getting Democratic votes as well, because you have yeah. those Democratic lawmakers who are coming out of the, the oh, Northeast the and the Southwest. The blue dog Democrat still is very alive in Pennsylvania. Exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely. And now I do want to go to Paula. You mentioned your gun stories 
Yeah. Um, so this one that I thought was so interesting, you did this two weeks ago now? Yeah, our February 13th edition. Right. So this is not a broad gun control story. This is more to do with the Capitol. Um, and it's we're not going to get into this too much, but it, it, it ties into another story you did this week that is still controversial enough that we don't really want to talk about it. It involves, you know, a state representative, and you can read Paula and Angela Columbus of the Philly Inquirer and Brad Bumstead's reporting on that. Uh, it's a very well-reported story, but uh, this is a related issue. Uh, Paula, it's easy to bring a gun into the Capitol if you work in, t- in the Capitol, right? Yeah, I mean, we... we um started looking at this because we were just kind of curious, can people bring guns into the Capitol? We didn't really, we thought no, but we weren't sure. So we kind of walked around the building and talked to some folks. And as it turns out, those of you who might have a pass to get into the building, lobbyists, staffers, even reporters, reporters. we don't get yep. checked. Yeah. No, we don't. Um, so Dave Redcliffe, the house clerk, um, you know, he had some really strong suggestions, and it's something that he's been working on for a while and trying to improve security. And he, he has real concerns about the number of people who have passes to get into the building and don't get checked. And um, in other places, for instance, in the U.S. Capitol, even if you have a pass, you still get checked. It's just at a different spot. Yeah, I think in the U.S. Capitol, it's only lawmakers, only elected officials can get by without being checked. So, I mean, that's way more people going through metal detectors than we have. Yeah. Now, um, I want to, I just thought this was very interesting. So, the actual law, um, so Pennsylvania's like crimes code, says you can't bring a gun in the Capitol, period, no matter who you are. And that's because we have a courtroom in the Capitol, which designates it a gun free zone. Right. And if you look, next time you go into the building, you know, most of the entrances, except for the ones coming up from the parking garage or a few other spots, are marked and they say, no, you know, no weapons in the building. If you look as you're coming in the main entrance, there's a big sign. And so basically when there are gun rallies and things like that, folks have to go around the back to where the fountain is, go in that way, and there are gun lockers. Yep. Um, but yeah, the reason why guns are prohibited is because the Supreme Court and some of the other appellate courts sit in the beautiful courtroom um, upstairs, and it is considered a building with a court facility. Mm-hmm. And uh it's interesting, too, because you can use these guns, in, or you can use these guns. You can bring a gun into the Capitol pretty much as, as long as no one sees it. Like, you're supposed to check it, but uh, I actually spoke to, I was sort of following up on a couple of these things. I spoke to the um, police, like the Capitol Police uh, spokesman, Troy Thompson, and he was saying that, uh, you know, yeah, no one's allowed to have it. If we see it, we'll take it or make sure it's secured, but I've also never seen it. Mm-hmm. And that goes in the face of, at the very least, what a lot of lawmakers are saying, which is, yeah, people bring the guns into the Capitol regularly. Yeah, I mean, no one would go on the record right. with us and say it. But a lot of people say, yeah, other people do it. Yeah, but, I mean, lots and lots of people said, yes, legislators carry, staffers carry. And, of course, you know, I think sometimes you might be able to see it if they're carrying in a sh- uh, shoulder holster or an mm-hmm. ankle holster. But we did not personally see any. Um, You're not going to go pat down all the lawmakers. No, we didn't pat down lawmakers. (laughs) But we definitely heard from a lot of folks the answer was yes. Um, And the the kind of average estimate we were given was between a dozen and two dozen lawmakers and staffers carry, um, you know, but of course 
I don't think anybody's going to admit to carrying since it is actually a prohibited offense. And they seem to know that it's questionable legally. I mean, you had in your story Mike Terzai being like, no, it's absolutely legal and it's a safety thing. But if you look at the crimes code and it's kind of obviously not legal. So yeah, I what mean, do you think? Is there like a confusion there? Do they think they're <laughs> exempt? Well, you know, Representative Metcalf, who's been very um, vocal on his support for gun yes, rights. and he has a control carry permit yeah. to say whether he carries one. It basically said, you know, he thinks that there's a, a separation of powers argument uh, to be made for the Department of General Services to be telling the legislature what they can and cannot do. So, But it's still the same building that they're all in. It's still the same building, but he said, I think separation of powers changes the issue for the legislature in our story. Um, but it, like you said, he didn't indicate whether he carries or not, and he said he never tells anyone because he considers that to be a safety issue. Right. Paula, but this DGS, though, if I remember correctly, has direct oversight of the Capitol and its grounds. Right, the entire building. The entire building. So it right. is the position of DGS that they have the authority to regulate the entire building. Um, but apparently some legislators do do think that, you know, at least for their operations, they may have the ability to control them differently. Right. Let's put it that way. So there seems to be a miscommunication about what's legal <laughs> here. Um, but so anyway, there is also, uh, you mentioned you know, just general safety. Now, we have a, an armed Capitol security squad, Capitol Police, and they you know patrol the main building, but they don't patrol the House and Senate chambers, do they? Yeah, our, our reporter, Mike Wershagen, who's out in Pittsburgh, did a story last year about the different um, you know divisions, and it yeah. was interesting to learn that the, you know, there's the House security, the Senate security, the Capitol Police, and... I got locked out of the newsroom once, and I couldn't figure out who to call yeah. to help me. <laughs> but if a, if a situation occurs, let's say, on the House side, and a House security person is there, they can't actually, you know, they would have to... There's this weird interaction where they'd have to call in the Capitol Police because the House security people don't have the power to arrest nor do they carry weapons. Yeah. Any, anymore. Anymore, right. And right. we learned that in our, our reporting for this issue, that they were stripped of that, uh, the House uh, security were stripped of that a few years ago because there was an issue with somebody's security clearance. Ah. So, um, so, so there could be a case made that if some crazy gunman gets into the Capitol, which seems relatively easy to do as long as you work there, um, and goes to like the House wing or the Senate wing, there's not a lot of people who are armed, who could do much. Well, that was one of the things we heard as, as um, kind of justification for people carrying, as particularly legislators, that they would have the ability to to defend if there was an issue. However, one person who had law enforcement um, background pointed out that you have to be careful if you're um, discharging a weapon in a crowded room, particularly depending on what caliber of weapon you're using, how many people are there, the recoil of the gun, um, all those kinds of issues are going to come into play. Right. So we, we, you know, in our reporting, we covered some different instances in other states where weapons were kind of falling out of people's backpacks and other things in situations in the Capitol, and one in particular with children nearby. And as you know, many children do visit the Capitol. Many. Many, They always stand in the stairways and sing and things like that. (laughs) It's generally what they're doing. Um, Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, And I... Also, I want to ask you, so back to Dave Redicliffe, who's the House Chief Clerk, who's been trying to, you know, change this for, like, the two years he's been House Chief Clerk. He was saying, I mean, like, 
If something does go wrong, say a person is not trustworthy out of the many, many, many state employees who have access to this building and they want to do something bad, who's, you know, who's responsible for that? Who, who's... Who gets answered to for that? Well, he, you know, in our story on the 13th, we ran a a box that said proposed security changes, and they were all coming from Redcliffe. He had a bunch of security um, improvements that he's thinking about and has been researching for a while. And one of them we talked about before. I mean, he thinks that even people with security badges should be scanned. The only people who, who wouldn't be scanned would be legislators. So... This is, you know, that would be a pretty significant change, and it would call for... It'd be for, expensive. Yeah, money. I mean, you'd need more staff to scan and more entrances and things like that, so... Well, and he had said, and I thought this was interesting, in the wake of, I think it was 9-11, um, there had, they had changed the rule and said everyone has to go through the metal detectors. Mm-hmm. And lawmakers, too, nobody was exempt from this, but it caused lines, and, like, everyone got held up by the door. They had to stand behind visitors. Mm-hmm. And so, eventually, they were like, eh, oh, well. And they just gave them the badges and said, do as you please. Yeah. So, so you know, I think it's a it's an interesting discussion, obviously. And, you know, from the uh, chief clerk's position, he, he'd like to have more debate about it. But yeah. there, there's a monetary angle as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but so you really don't know, like, who would be, like, who would take the fall if, like, something did happen? I think it, it depends on where it was and who was involved. And clearly the fact that there are three different entities within the building who have some role in security, the House, the Senate, and then the Capitol Police. Yeah. You know, and, and even with um, our reporter, Mike Wershagen's reporting last year, it's some instances it seems like it's unclear about who would report first, who would respond first, and right. what would they do. So, Well, and then also, like, if there's a concern about a person who may or may not have a gun, like... Who deals with that concern? I'm sure they would go to Capitol Police and be like, this person can't be allowed in if you don't metal detect them. Yeah, and one of Redcliffe's suggestions is merging the House and Senate security details oh, into an adjunct force under the Capitol Police. The Capitol Police is an accredited law enforcement yeah. agency, so that's yet another um, interesting... Yeah, that, that is something that's actually never made sense to me, why the two chambers have their own sort of private militias and not, why, there's <laughs> not, why there's not a... Sort They're of not a, armed. Not armed. Well, not, well, yeah, but, and I, I, I was actually... A for that, there was like a, there was an enormous turf thing when then Speaker Sam Smith gave the House Security Forces guns, and the Senate kind of went bananas about it. <laughs> and then, you know, there was the thing with the background checks, and then like that one per, that read them being stripped of of weapons. And it, I, I got to tell you, I mean, they're in the wake of 9-11 being around for that when they hardened the Capitol and put in all of the cameras and the barricades and the parking garages and the mags and that kind of stuff. I mean, there was a, there was a a pronounced shift in the culture of the building. But, you know, here we are, what, God, 17 years on from the attacks, and invariably things get a little bit lax and things don't get tightened up until something else happens. And we saw that, what, like last year, what, with Fire Extinguisher Guy who went on oh, a rampage. I through, love Fire Extinguisher Guy. Who went on a rampage through the Senate talking about how easy it is if someone yeah. wants to, you know, commit mischief. To recap, this is a great story, I think. Fire Extinguisher Guy was just some drunk man yeah. Oh, who yeah, got in a fight with him. his girlfriend yeah. in Harrisburg somehow found his way into the Capitol through, like, a window, ran on down to the Senate side, found a fire extinguisher, was like, this is my activity for the night, 
started spinning around in a circle with this fire extinguisher, just like blasting it off everywhere. Yeah. And Capital Security didn't notice until they saw like an encroaching fog down the hallway. <laughs> and it was some significant damage, right? Oh, yeah, there yeah. Was. It was a lot of damage. And it's an old building. You know, even like, you know, if somebody vandalizes the Capitol, it's, you know, there's expensive like yeah, historical like, stuff in there. It's like north of 10 grand, I think, to clean that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was expensive. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I mean, that's sort of a mild, almost funny thing that happened. But like, it could be much worse. It's not a yeah. hard building to get into. And, and, and we've seen this too when there when there are, there are Second Amendment rallies out on the front steps. Yeah, yeah. It is not unusual for people to turn up with weapons, and you know that can be a little disconcerting if somebody decides to literally or figuratively pop off. It's <laughs> yeah. You know, who, I mean, what what do you do in, in you know who has jurisdiction there? What do you do in response to that? Any number of questions get raised. Yeah. No, it's uh, <laughs> there seems to be very little oversight for all this, basically, and nobody has really put a lot of thought into why there isn't oversight or what actually the rule should be. So, um, really good reporting from the caucus on that. Thanks. Yeah. Um, all right, other stuff. So, Paul, you also had a story this week about zombie packs. Oh yeah, we we thought the zombie pack issue um, was really fun. Um, we actually got inspiration from our fellow journalists. Um, make sure I plug it correctly uh i'm looking for it it was i can't find it tampa bay tampa bay times i think and a bunch of um broadcast journalists anyway the question is you know if somebody dies a legislator dies and their pack continues on or they stop running for office but the pack continues on or the pack morphs into something else so we were mostly looking at um state uh you know, legislators. I think the Tampa Bay Times and their reporting did um, federal uh, PACs, but PAC money is definitely something that, you know, plays a huge role in politics, whether mm-hmm. it's the super PACs or state level PACs. So um, we found some really intriguing stuff. Governor Rendell has a PAC that morphed from his Rendell for mayor um, into a, a different kind of PAC. So you have, you know, shape changers and for you sci-fi <laughs> fans um and the zombies but our, our cover's amazing if you haven't seen it it's, it's got very a, good it's got a um zombie and a tie on it uh, politician zombie yeah so and then the inside cover has lots of zombie zombies silhouettes. stumbling around but apparently that you know uh, here in pennsylvania there are packs where people the legislators themselves have died or people who ran for office many years ago and never sought out another office but their pack continues so so what we, happens to the money then yeah well it's a different thing sometimes it goes to um other packs sometimes it was paid out for expenses um sometimes it um was paid to the candidate themselves um so it's lots of different things but in pennsylvania you know which has been described as the wild wild west for campaign <laughs> finance issues and for lots of things yeah you yes. can you know pack money can be used for all manner of things yeah. clothing haircuts you know bowling who knows take your pick as long as it is in furtherance of you know the campaign you and can, i can't campaign if i'm not going bowling that's so. right you better go bowling you better get a haircut all this kind of stuff but um you know legal fees is definitely oh, yeah. a big one and yep. you know the many of us has have reported on uh, lieutenant governor stack and his <laughs> um the investigation last year by the yeah. office of inspector general and um the philadelphia inquirer reported recently on almost a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees paid out by his pack and it's not unusual i mean senator farnese paid out money for um legal fees 
former Attorney General Kathleen Kane. Um, so that that use of PAC monies for legal fees common, um, and it's a lot of money sometimes. I mean, yeah. Senator Farnese's records from the Department of State that we looked at show that um, he still owes, I think it's about $305,000 as of January 2017, wow. still owed to um, a law firm after he had paid out thousands, tens this, of thousands. He was in some legal trouble related He was. To he was acquitted um, uh, uh, in a trial down in the Philadelphia um, what was area. it, a campaign finance thing? It was. It was kind of a weird case um, brought by, I think it was DOJ. So I believe that's what that money was yeah. used for. It's just described as legal fees. Okay, so it's not even, okay, interesting. Yeah, and a lot of times the filings aren't clear. Yeah. I mean, it'll say legal fees or restaurant or, you know. And that's the case for a lot of campaign filings, for other, you know, extra campaign filings from Pennsylvania. It's just... Uh, you know, it's hard to keep track of stuff here sometimes. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Paula, that's a great story. I urge anybody to check that out. Um, John, I also, just before we go, because yeah. we are going to hit 30 minutes here, but uh, you hosted, um, we mentioned this before, mm-hmm. you hosted a debate last night yes. uh, between Scott Wagner, Laura Ellsworth, and Paul Mango, Yes. Uh, the GOP candidates for governor. How do you think, how, what, what were the big takeaways you had from that? You know, you could look at the three candidates, Mango, Ellsworth, and Wagner, and you want, I mean, what you want to do is try to draw bright-line distinctions between them. You had, you had Mango come out on Thursday night on the campus of Harrisburg Area Community College quite, you know, quite aggressively, going, aggressive, after, going after yeah. Wagner on, on several occasions, uh, Wagner hitting back by trying to call him uh, Lying Paul, which <laughs> didn't really – I'll get points for effort, but it didn't really seem to take. Well, I mean, I think – come on, man. Like, if you're going to try to ke- come up with a catchy nickname, don't just use the one from the presidential from the old, election. The other guy. Come up with a new one. Yeah. But, I mean, the, Wagner seemed – I have to say, Wagner seemed a little bit off his game um, last night. And it seemed as if he was very much running for, uh, from the position as as incumbent. He mentioned a couple of times that he'd been endorsed by the state Republican Party. Right. Um, the Republican Party has not, in four decades, not picked the endorsed candidates. So maybe you can't blame him for being a little cocky there. But sure. even still, um, Laura Ellsworth, um, often, I have to say, between the sniping between Mango and Wagner, Ellsworth often came off as the adult on the stage on... Thursday night. She uh, certainly she's taking sort of a less ideologue-ish. Uh, yeah, I and mean, she habit. she of the three of them, for instance, Katie, you were there for this um, advanced the idea of, a, of an independent commission for uh, congressional legislative redistricting, yeah. uh, where Mango and and Wagner remain sort of intensely partisan about that. Mm-hmm. So you know she ha- I, she of the three of them seems most likely to buck convention. Um, which unfortunately probably doesn't augur well for her chances in the primary. But she's even also still. by far the least well-funded. She's the only one who's not independently wealthy. Exactly right. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's you know it's it's an interesting dynamic that you have there. I also thought it was sort of interesting to see, um, you know, you had as you said, like you had Scott Wagner, who's not who has never been in his career like an establishment guy. Almost saying, like, well, I'm an outsider, but I know how Harrisburg works, and right. I you know, have experience, and I'm going to be able to hit the ground running. He was really pushing those, you know, quote-unquote, establishment bona fides that he has. And, and you saw Mango hit him for that, calling him an yeah, establishment yeah. liberal, which we probably... And he called him a liberal progressive, liberal just pro- like Tom Wolf. Yeah. Exactly. Because <laughs> there, there's so much ideological common ground between Governor Wolf and yeah, Senator I thought that Wagner. was a, a bold claim, but... <laughs> 
No, it was interesting, and I think you're going to see a lot of that kind of um, sniping between Mango and Wagner. Yeah, but last night was the first sort of formal debate setting between yeah. the three candidates. All we've had now are our candidate fora between the three of them. Last night was the first chance. Everyone had the sort of chance to rebut and go after each yeah. other, um, and they did not disappoint in that yeah, regard. Yeah, no. I also want to note um, Wagner and Mango made time to measure each other's businesses against each other. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't hands, <laughs> but it was close. It wasn't hands. It was businesses. But, yes. yeah, Wagner said, oh, I hand out 600 paychecks regularly. And Mango says, my business is bigger. <laughs> and Wagner says, no, you laid people off. And Mango says, no, uh And, you know. Oh, my. It's mm. just, it's great fun. Although, although Mango, when pressed, has actually never been able to name... A job. Any of the jobs that he's creating, we've asked him a couple of times on. He's, he's held himself out as his job creator, but cannot actually say here, here, and here is yeah. where I've done that. Well, and he was a consultant. He worked for a firm called McKinsey and Company, exactly. and we do know that, that that firm did help some businesses lay off you know, employees, lay off employees right. through various means. Mango says he was never part of any of that right. and didn't know about it. So, you know. Business, business, business. Sounds like there's some still fun stuff coming up with watching these debates and interactions between the candidates in the next few weeks. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a good one. It'll Definitely. be good. All right, guys. I think that's it for today. Anything else you're looking at in the yep. coming weeks? I'm all good. All right. Yeah. Cool. We will be back next week. All right. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Thank Katie.